0: take two? Can I take two? Is that all right? Okay. So we're going to be talking about a heavy topic this morning. And and that's okay, because one of the things that I'm convinced of is that the church in America has become very complacent. And we are, uh, what I will say, you know, asleep in the light. And Keith Green, the old singer, had um, if you haven't heard of him or if you have not listened to him, I encourage you highly to listen to some of his music because it is very convicting. And he has a song called Asleep Sleep in the Light where he is calling the church out of its complacency. And so I figured, you know, to do something because it's a heavy topic, we could use a visual aid of some kind. And, uh, you know, like I said, this is going to be difficult for me because I'm a bit of a hand talker, not to mention just turning the pages. So um, when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the gospel, one of the things that we don't do a good job of in America is making people count the cost, right? When we stand up for righteousness, there is going to be a cost. We like to talk about things like, you know, forgiveness and peace and freedom and salvation. and All those things are true, but there is a cost that comes along with being a Christian. If we are going to choose to follow God's word, live the way that he asks us to, um, speak truth and condemn sin, then the world's going to turn on us. You can bet that. Um, But we shouldn't be surprised when that happens because we've been told about that ahead of time. Um, There are pastors right now in Canada, not very far away, that are being arrested and put in jail because they are speaking out against sexual immorality. And for that, the government has termed that hate speech. And you know, the trouble is, when the people in power get to determine what hate speech is, then they're also going to determine what truth is. And the people that don't agree with them, they are going to silence. And that's already happening in our country today. People that they don't agree with, what they're doing, what they're saying, they're being silenced. And that's a scary thing. And it's getting easier for them. It's not far away anymore. It's close to home. Uh, We live in truly unprecedented times. Um, Our president, just this past couple weeks, um, ordered the further study and development of a digital currency. A digital currency, one that would track everything that you buy, everywhere everywhere you go. And you might think, well, Nathan, that's not big of a deal because I actually already buy all of my stuff online. Well, you know, what about a currency that's issued by the government, no more paper, um, and because it's issued by the government, it can also be turned off by the government. No more buying, no more selling. Sounds like something I read in Revelation 13 something that the Antichrist is going to do. Now, this isn't the mark of the beast, okay? Let's not get confused, but because um, we won't be here for that, right? Um, but this is a precursor to, okay? This is getting people familiar with what's going to happen. It's lowering people's walls. And that is something that is happening right now. And you might say, well, Nathan, that, that can't happen until we have a one-world system. Well, just this past week, there was a meeting in Dubai called the World Government Summit. And it was global leaders, representatives coming together, having, you know, meetings about what the future holds. And the very first item on their agenda was, are we ready for a new world order? That was the first thing on their agenda. And a lot of the conversation just in that first session surrounded global digital currencies. And so it's happening very quickly. Um, we're entering a new age for the church in America, one that is going to test the genuineness of our faith. Um, what are we going to do? What are we going to say? How are we going to react um, when we're called to, you know, to face persecution and when it comes knocking on our door? How are we going to respond? Because it is getting close. Um, you know, we've been going through... The Beatitudes, we'll be going through Matthew 5 here. Um, But we haven't gotten to the last one yet. We're actually going to wrap up the Beatitudes today. And we're going to do three whole verses. Um, Matthew 5, this is going to be 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now it's not coincidental that Jesus goes from peacemakers to persecution because there are people out there that do not want peace. They don't want peace. Uh, I mean, in fact, if you live out the beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted. If you live out these things that we've been talking about, I mean, being poor in spirit, Right, mourning over your sin, not asserting yourself, being obsessed with righteousness and purity and mercy and wanting to bring peace into every situation, if we live that way, we're going to be persecuted. Uh, We sound like goody-two-shoes is what we sound like, and the world can't stand that. Um, The world loves its prejudices, and it loves its uh, perversions. And if you try to point people to an absolute truth, even if it's going to save them, they will you know, ostracize you. It's really strange. Jesus said, he goes, if you live like me, guys, people, there's always going to be people that are going to hate you. All these kingdom characteristics that Jesus has been talking about um, run contrary to human nature, right? Uh, we know this. Uh, the, pe- the world doesn't understand this and they really don't understand suffering. Um, I mean, the definition of happiness involves you know, the absence of suffering. Uh, and, and you know, honestly, I define it that way too. I mean, um, right now, what would make me really happy is to be sitting on a beach uh, with my wife. That would make me really happy uh, temporarily. Um, but, you know, we're called, we're not called to happiness. We are called to godliness. And godliness is something that we be, should be pursuing. And the rewards that Jesus is outlining in the Beatitudes um, are for citizens of the kingdom and they far outweigh any kind of happiness that we could generate on earth. The problem with carnal Christians these days is that you know they enjoy what they have so much that they don't hunger and thirst for anything more longer lasting. They become embedded in the world. James says that those that make themselves a friend of the world actually make themselves an enemy of God. It's kind of a scary thing. We want to be liked by the world, right? But if we if we literally make friends with, if we become embedded in the world and we don't remember what we really stand for, you know, where our kingdom citizenship really lies, we're going to be enemies of God. You know, once we're saved, once we're saved, we are uh, no longer of this world. Um, we're in the world, but God has saved us out of it. Then he sends us back into it, you know, to be his hands and feet, to bring glory to him and to save other people. And if we want to bring massive amounts of glory to God, then we need to have these attitudes, these B attitudes, worked into our lives. And when we live them out, this is going to cause us to suffer on some level. Godliness is going to generate hostility towards the world. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, it says that your crowning feature Your crowning feature, if you're a citizen, is that you are going to be persecuted. Kingdom people are rejected because of the message, but also because of Jesus. That's really what they're rejecting. And every human being has a fear of rejection. Um, that's just the way it is. We can say that we don't really care if people accept us or not, but we all have an innate desire to want to be accepted. Um, and as a follower of Jesus, we need to know that truly living for him and pursuing righteousness, people are going to reject you. But this is the important thing. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus in you. That's what they're rejecting. See, if we just change our behavior, you just change your behavior a little bit, or if you just keep quiet, people will accept you. That's fine. Um, if you decide that you're not going to laugh at their jokes, if you decide that you're not going to participate in their carnality, um, if we decide to speak truth, then we're going to be, you know, we're going to be ostracized. We're going to be shunned we don't even have to preach. You don't even have to preach to people. All you have to do is just live it out and they're not going to want to be around you very much because it's going to be convicting to them. Righteousness is actually confrontational to the world. Listen to what Paul writes to his young pastor in training, Timothy. It's the second Timothy 3.10. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think we see that today, going from bad. To worse. What was Paul teaching? Well, he told the Corinthians that he was just preaching Christ crucified. Uh, His conduct was righteousness. His aim in life, his faith was in Jesus. You know, his patience, his love, his steadfastness. For all of these things he was persecuted. But Paul endured. He endured all of it. And he says, From all of them the Lord rescued him. I read that and I'm like, what? Wait a minute, he rescued you from all of them? In 2 Corinthians 11, he tells the church, he says, I am a servant of Christ, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. I would have been like, okay, we get it get it, Paul. You're in danger. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So maybe we should just read that every morning before we get up and go off to work. That would maybe put us in a better attitude instead of complaining. But what is he talking about? It doesn't sound like to me that he was saved from them all. But again, you know, we think of happiness as, you know, the absence of pain and suffering. You know, that's what we feel the blessed life is, the absence of pain and suffering. But the disciple of Jesus, it's part of the deal. It's part of the deal, pain and suffering. We're also told that we're saved for good works. Remember back in Galatians, when we went through there, Paul said, he said, I don't know what I want more. You know, if I live, that means fruitful labor for me. That means it's going to be good for you guys if I survive this. But you know what? If I'm martyred and I die, which I kind of won't mind because that means I get to be with Jesus. So I'm kind of torn between the two, but God saves him out of it. We're saved out of it for good works. And if you remember the theme of that book, the theme was joy. He's talking about all of these things that had happened to him. He's torn between what he should do and the theme of that book is joy. If we live for righteousness sake, we're not going to be sheltered from persecution and suffering, but we will be saved out of it one way or another. And most importantly, he's going to be with us in it. We know that for sure. He's going to be with us in it. Now, being in America, we live in a relatively sheltered place, but if we still live redeemed lives, then it's going to generate resentment and reaction of some kind from the world. Now, you might say, Nathan, I thought that if we lived like Jesus, that that was going to draw people to him. Well, it'll draw some. some Only the ones that the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. It says that narrow is the way to life, and few are those that find it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Most people are going to reject the message. So most will find it confrontational. Are we reflecting or are we confronting the society that we live in? And I'm not talking about standing on the corner with a bullhorn. Okay, I'm just talking about living righteous lives. People are going to find that convicting because it doesn't line up with their lifestyle. You know, the world's motto used to be live and let live. That's what it used to be. You know, just, you know what? You do you and don't bother me. And then nobody has to be uncomfortable. Right? Live and let live. That's not the motto anymore. The motto is you live the way you want to. You let me live the way I want to. And if you don't agree with me, then I'm going to cancel you. That's what it means. You're going to suffer some kind of persecution because you don't agree. You don't affirm my lifestyle. So the stakes have gotten incrementally higher, and I've got news for you guys. It's only going to rise up from here. It's only going to keep going until Jesus returns. Our faith and our way of life is going to be challenged more and more until Jesus returns, which I'm convinced is going to be very soon within our lifetime. That's what I'm believing right now. Um, Alicia and I were sitting around the other We were watching something, and I said, could you believe that this could actually happen? Like. Jesus says you don't know the day or the hour, right? But you should know the seasons. And the seasons right now are looking a lot like he's going to be returning soon. Um, I listened to an interview earlier this week, and the guy said something that was very, um, very, you know, simple and yet very profound. And he was saying that, you know, that word you in the scriptures, when you see you, oftentimes it is a plural. It's not a singular You know, and what that means is when we're addressed as you, it means that it's a group, a community. We're not supposed to do this life on our own. When we go through persecutions, when we live this life out for righteousness, we're not supposed to do that on our own. It's hard. It's difficult. We need each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to do this. And if we're going to be prepared for the kingdom, then we need to be prepared for loneliness, We need to be prepared for misunderstanding and ridicule and rejection and unfairness from the world. That's what we need to be prepared for. That's why we need each other's because persecution is a promise. It's coming if it hasn't already reached you. The church in America is under attack unlike any other time in our history Um, And it ain't far away anymore used to seem like that was over in Africa over in Asia It's pretty close now. It's even making its way here And the time is coming where you actually need to make up you need to resolve in your mind ahead of time How you're going to respond because if you wait until the heat of the moment to see what you're going to do How you're going to respond it ain't going to be good We need to resolve ahead of time how we're going to respond Jesus said, he said, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my father. You say, Nathan, I would never deny Jesus. You know, I would never flatly deny Jesus. And maybe that's true, but would you withhold part of your life from other people? You know, people ask, you know, hey, what'd you guys do over the weekend? What'd you do yesterday? And you avoid talking about church and, you know, your body and, you know, worship then are we hiding that part of our lives, denying it, so as to not create waves, right? To not be confrontational, kind of go along to get along. That is a fear of rejection. That's a fear of rejection that I talked about. That's going to be an affront to people that, you know, went to the lake or did whatever, you know, uh whatever they do on Sundays instead of being at church, since it's not much of a priority these days. Uh the early church um, the people in the Roman Empire, which was pretty much everywhere, uh, the Christians there um, were required, well, everybody was required to pay homage to Caesar. Everybody was. And they didn't really care what God you worshipped. People worshipped all kinds of gods. But first you had to acknowledge that Caesar was deity. You had to call him Lord, and then you could worship whoever you wanted to. Um, but the Christians that, you know, back then, the true followers of Jesus wouldn't do it, and they lost a lot refusing to bow a knee to Caesar. They lost jobs. They lost reputations. They lost possessions. A lot of them, millions of them lost their lives because they wouldn't simply say Caesar's Lord. I mean, they would tell people, I know you don't mean it. Just say it. God will forgive you. You know, just say it and then move on with your life. But they wouldn't do it. They stood firm in the face of persecution. Now, we're not to seek out persecution, but we are called to be ready to endure when it happens because it's a sure sign of our salvation. If we're going to endure under persecution, that's a sure sign that you're saved. And there's three types here that Jesus is talking about. First, there's physical persecution. Then he talks about, you know, verbal insults. And then lastly, false accusations. Um, all things that our Lord suffered in Acts 16, uh, Paul. Takes a man named Silas and they're traveling from city to city, talking to the Jews and people about Jesus. And they're staying in a city called Philippi. Uh, And for a number of days, they're going back and forth from where they were staying to a place of prayer. And every day they would pass uh, this little girl. And it said that she was a slave girl and also that she was possessed. She had some type of spirit of divination inside of her that could tell the future, which is kind of weird. And people love to know the future, right? They always want to know the future. So the people that owned her put her to work and they got pretty wealthy as a result of that. Well, when she would see them walk by, she would shout out, she would say, these men are servants of the most high God and they're teaching you the way to salvation. I think that's weird. I mean, she's got a demon inside of her, but it's speaking the truth. Like, that's weird. It just can't help it. James writes to the church. He says, okay, you guys believe that there's only one God. Good for you. So do the demons. Even the demons believe. They know the truth. This demon's saying there's only one God, and the way to be saved is through his son, Christ Jesus. That's what they were preaching to everybody there, and she was just confirming that. And this went on for days, we're told. And Now, on day one, that would have been kind of freaky, Right? And on day, maybe two, three, I would have been wondering, is this like a good thing that they're, you know, that she's announcing what's going on or or is this going to be problematic for us? But it says, I love this. It says that after many days, Paul got greatly annoyed. (laughs) He got greatly annoyed by this girl shouting out every single day who they were, Um Even though this evil spirit was speaking truth, evil spirits have evil intentions, okay? Even though it knows the truth, it stands in opposition to the truth. There are all kinds of false religions out there that have pieces of truth in them. They even sound true, but they miss the mark completely. And there will be millions of people, unfortunately, that end up in hell because they believed the lies of the enemy. You know, I heard when I was little, and we used to tell our kids this too, that a half truth is a whole lie, right? A half truth is a whole lie, and the enemy is full of half truths. So one day, Paul finally had enough of it. He was fed up, and he turned around, and he said to this girl, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and the demon came out. Yay, chalk one up for the good guys, right? Well, it had a cost. In Acts 16, it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods and when they had inflicted many blows upon them they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely having received this order he put them in the inner prison and fastened their their feet in the stocks now even though that evil spirit was speaking the truth it stood in opposition to the truth it's funny because at that point it doesn't say that the people had a problem with them going back and forth to their place of worship. You know what? Out there, they don't care that you come in here. They really don't. It's only when you live it outside that people have a problem with you. Persecution's inevitable. It's supposed to be part of the Christian life. In this case, it's physical. They were dragged before the leaders, they were beaten, and they were left in jail as long as, really, as long as they wanted to keep them there. Now, this has been the plight of many Christians around the world for many years. Uh, Paul goes on to tell the church in Rome, he says, if we are children of God, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Romans 8. Most of the people in that day knew what they were signing up for when they decided to follow Jesus. And I don't want to diminish the Christians that live in America just because we don't experience physical persecution because there's many Christians that wouldn't bat an eye at physical persecution right now. But one of the things that we need to do a better job of is showing people the cost of following Jesus. There is a cost. There should be a cost to following Jesus. Because you and I know that just becoming a Christian doesn't make your life all sunshine and rainbows. It doesn't. And oftentimes we tell people, listen, just get saved and your life will be better. Jesus is going to make your life better. When that's not It's not the case. He's going to give you peace. He's going to give you eternal security and freedom inside, but it's not going to make your life easier. It's just not. Um, Because in the last days, what we're told is that there will be what the Bible calls a great apostasy, a great falling away. And we're seeing that right now. We're seeing this whole deconstruction in the church where people are deconstructing their faith because they didn't embrace it as their own. It was their parents' faith. And so now they're kind of breaking down what they believe and they're kind of building it back, putting it back together the way they want to instead of the way the word says to. And so we've got this great falling away and we've got people, you know, customizing the faith the way that they want to. We need to make sure that we tell people there's going to be a cost to following Jesus. You've probably been to churches where the pastor gives an altar call, right? And he says, "Okay, I want every head bowed and every eye closed. And if you want to follow Jesus, just re- re- raise your hand up real quick and then, you know, say a prayer." I said this to our small group, you know, a couple of weeks ago. I said, "You know what? In the day where I get to give an altar call, it's going to be every head up and every eye open, and if you want to receive Jesus, stand up out of your seat." Because If you can't stand up in a room full of people that are praying for you and rooting for you and are going to be part of your spiritual family, you are never going to do it out there. It's not going to happen. You have to make up your mind ahead of time, and it starts here in the church. In Matthew 13, Jesus is telling a parable that we often call... Um, the parable of the sower, but I like to call it the parable of the soils because there's only one sower and that's Jesus. But you guys probably remember the story. There's a farmer and he's out, you know, throwing seed in his field. It's planting time. And he's walking along the edge of the field. To me, I'm like, man, he doesn't seem like a very good you know, shot because he's throwing it on the side of the field and some of it's landing on the path and some of it's landing in rocks and some of it's landing in thorns and then some of it actually fell in good soil. So 25% doesn't seem like a very good average, but 25% of the seed fell in good soil. Now we're told that some of it fell in rocky places and it sprang up quickly because it had no depth of soil. The seed went down and it sprang up quickly. Oftentimes, we mistake speed with, you know, productivity. And just because it sprang up quickly, didn't mean that it had what it needed. And it says that when the sun came out, it was scorched and it faded because it had no depth of soil. It had no root. Now, this parable left the disciples scratching their heads. It left the whole, you know, all the people scratching their heads and also the disciples, which happened quite a bit, actually, which is kind of strange. But it was a great teaching opportunity for Jesus. Listen to how he explains to his disciples. It says Matthew 13. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed that fell on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. If your spiritual life is shallow, if your relationship with Jesus has no root, then when trials come, you're going to fade. You're going to wilt under it. Lots of people like Jesus. People don't like church. Lots of people like Jesus, but they don't necessarily want him to change them, much less suffer for him. Another form of persecution that believers will face are verbal insults. Okay, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says that, you know, we have become a spectacle to the world. We're held in disrepute, we're reviled, which means insulted by the world. We've been persecuted. Sin is so openly flaunted in our day, it honestly, it defies belief at times. Um, the Bible says that they glory in their shame. The things that are shameful, they actually find glory in. But if you try to speak truth to those people, see what happens. See what happens when you try to speak truth, the truth of Scripture, into them. They're going to curse you, and they're going to hurl all kinds of insults at you, because what you're pointing out in the Scriptures doesn't line up with their behavior and so as a result we're called unloving we're called bigoted we're called intolerant for holding up a standard of righteousness this is getting challenging guys <laughs> Paul was certainly seen that way um, he had impeccable credentials you know Paul he could have drawn a lot of people to himself just based on you know his credentials but he refused to do that all he had to do was just calm down a bit. And he could have brought a lot more people, you know, within earshot of what he had to say. But he would not use worldly means to accomplish heavenly purposes because he knew that it would fail. How did he know that it was fail? Well, we're given a story where Paul goes to Athens. In his travels, he finally makes it to Athens. And that was the intellectual and influential capital of the world at that time. You know, if Rome was like New York, then Athens was like L.A. I mean, it was... The place to be. And he was walking down the streets of Athens and he became overwhelmed by all of the idols and all of the gods and all of the memorials that they had set up in this city. And then he saw one and it had the inscription on it. It said, to the unknown God, to the unknown God. See, they were, they were so inclusive. Interesting. They were so inclusive that they didn't want to leave anybody out. So they had one to the unknown God. They didn't want to leave anybody out. And Paul one day was talking with people on the street. He was talking with the Jews. He was talking with some of the God fearing Greeks. And he was talking about, you know, this foreign God. And people heard him and they said, What's this babbler talking about? They were kind of stuck up in Athens, apparently. What's this babbler talking about? And when they found out that he was talking about foreign gods, that got their attention because they like to hear about stuff like this. They're very intellectual, you see, very open-minded. And so they brought him to this place called the Oropagus, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. This is a place where people exchanged ideas, and they talked about, you know, concepts. Think of it as a place where professors would meet, okay? But Paul is in his element here. I mean, he's the smartest guy in the room, even with all of these guys. And so he goes down there. And he says, I noticed that you guys have lots of gods in this city And you have one, says to the unknown God That's the one that I want to tell you about And so everybody's on the edge of their seat But he starts calling out their idolatry And saying there actually is only one God And his name is Jesus And he came and he died and rose again And at that point, everybody started making fun of him They started reviling him. They just wrote him off. They started mocking him because of that. They wanted to hear his ideas, but when they challenged, you know, their way of life, what they believed, they began insulting him. Only a few people believed because he started using the things of the world. He started using their, you know, framework to try to explain the gospel. And in the end, only a few people believed, but the majority shunned him, insulted him. After that, he said, you know what? The only thing I'm preaching now is Christ crucified. That's it. I'm not going to use the things of the world to try to convince people. And, you know, the Oscars was on last uh, last Sunday. Remember? Oscars last Sunday. I didn't watch it. Neither did you. Okay. But I caught enough clips to know that the carnality was on full display last Sunday night. These are the American idols of our day. And there's a temptation in the church to find people, celebrities that claim to be Christian, right? You know, so-and-so said that they, you know, that they like Jesus or that they're a Christian. And so for some reason, we, you know, put these people on pedestals. We elevate them. But rarely do you see those people stand up for righteousness, Rarely do you see that because it would cost them. It would cost them their reputation. It would cost them their standing in Hollywood. And so rarely do you see that happen. It would cost them influence, so to speak. Whenever people tiptoe around the gospel, what they mean is, I don't want to make waves. I don't want to lose my good standing. People will start to mock me. People will start to insult me if I take a stand for righteousness. But withholding the truth, guys, only makes us disobedient. And in some cases, it makes us guilty. It makes us guilty. If we know we're supposed to share the gospel and we don't, even if it means we're going to be made fun of or persecuted or reviled in some way, we're disobedient. When the church tries to use the things of the world to do the work of heaven, we only succeed in hiding heaven from the world. That's all we do. We hide heaven from the world and we try to use their framework. If we're gonna be pleasing to God, then we're not gonna be pleasing to the system of the world. Okay, we may face first physical persecutions, we may face verbal insults, but the last one that Jesus mentions here are false accusations. Uh people will people will speak all kinds of evil against you. This one might be the one we're most susceptible to in our culture because it's speaking about our reputation. Um, we're fearful of losing our reputation. And it's harder to take because it's harder to stop, honestly. Uh, in our day, a lot of damage could be done in a very short amount of time before we have the, t- you know, the opportunity to get out in front of it, before we have the chance to defend ourselves. And we have a great compulsion to defend ourselves. But God says, listen, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Don't worry about your reputation. You just live the way that I instructed you to. I read this week that it's strong proof of human depravity that men's curses and God's blessings should meet in the same person. Like how can the same person be cursed by the world, but be blessed by God? That's just a sure sign of human depravity that we can live rightly and be cursed for it. Remember that real hatred that's pointed at you. It's not pointed at you. It's pointed at Jesus. The real target of the world is righteousness. That's why it's easy to escape persecution, guys. It's real easy to escape it. All we have to do is just put some distance between us and Jesus, and we'll be, you know, we'll be uh, left alone. If we don't embrace righteousness too much, we'll just be left alone. People don't mind if you're just a little religious, okay? Just don't be a zealot, right? And don't put your standards on me, but they're actually not your standards; they're the Bible standards. So those are what we're supposed to cling to. Again, it's not you, it's against him. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, he said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word I said to you, if servant is not greater than his master, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, we're shocked these days when we see the depravity of man. We're somewhat shocked. But, you know, mankind waited thousands of years for the perfect man to come along. And when he did, they killed him for it. You know, they killed Jesus for his perfection and for his message. Righteousness always invites persecution. All of the disciples gained, they all died brutal deaths. Except for John. Uh, John didn't you know die a brutal death but him they tried to kill by dipping him in a bat, in a vat of boiling oil that's what they did to John to try to kill him but when he didn't die then they sent him off to the island of patmos right they exiled him when he wouldn't die which is very strange but that's where he wrote the book of revelation that's what we got out of that because he survived There was an ancient theologian that wrote, The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The Jews and the Romans tried their best to stamp out Christianity, uh, but it ended up spreading like wildfire. Uh, Believers fled from one city to the next under persecution. They would flee one place, go to another, preach the gospel there. Then those people would believe. So it just started to spread and grow. And so the joke's kind of on the devil, because every time he tries to shut down the church, the church simply grows. It's counter, it's counter to what we would think, right? Like we don't want suffering, but if the church is going to grow, if the church is going to thrive, it actually needs that. Um, this isn't in my notes, but I heard this story about fishermen that were trying to catch cod uh, back in the day and they were putting them on railroad cars and they were sending them to the West coast because they were catching them in the East coast, sending them to the West coast. But when they would get there, by the time they got there, they would be like, you know, mushy. They wouldn't be the right texture. And they were trying to figure this out because, you know, by the time they got there, they just weren't what they were supposed to be. And if they froze them, then they lost their flavor. And so somebody suggested that they put their natural enemy in with them in the tank. And so their natural enemy at the time was a catfish. And so they put one catfish in a tank full of codfish and the catfish would chase them around the whole time, just pester them. And that way, when they got there, they were the way they were supposed to be. They were fit. They tasted the right way. They were the right consistency, all because they had some irritation in the tank. Um, Believers fled from one city to the next. Um, You know, when I was, he tried, Satan's strategy is to try to take as many people to hell as he can, regardless. Um, He knows he's lost. But he's going to try to take as many people as possible. Uh, when I was young, we used to spend our summers at Gladstone Pool um, because we, our house didn't have air conditioning. So we spent all day, every day at Gladstone Pool. And oftentimes, uh, my buddies would show up. And inevitably, one of us would be standing next to the edge of the pool. And then a group of them would show up with weird smirks on their faces. And they would be approaching one person with the intent of pushing them in the pool, right? That's what teenagers do. And that person, whoever it was, would grab and claw and, you know, try to get as much of them as they could to bring as many of them into the water with them as they could. And that's really the strategy of Satan. He knows he's lost, but he's going to do everything he can. He's going to use every means necessary to bring as many people to hell as he can. The promise of Jesus in this final beatitude is actually the same as the very first one. Yours is the kingdom of heaven, which is interesting. That's where he started off and that's where we end. Compared to what we gain, the price is very small. In fact, he says there's a double blessing for the people that have suffered and been persecuted. In Second Thessalonians, Paul writes, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in afflictions that you're enduring This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Why should we rejoice when we face persecution? Because our reward will be great in heaven and heaven is forever. It's not a treasure that can be taken away. Uh, That's why Jesus told us, he said, listen, don't store up for yourselves stuff here. Everything you have here is going to end up in a junkyard, all of it. So don't lay it up here. Um, But what we do with our time, how we invest our time here is going to reap eternal rewards. Stock market's going down, guys. (laughs) But our treasure there is never going to lose its value. It's never going to happen. That's why we're supposed to lay up our treasure there. Um, You can't keep it, but you can send it on ahead. Well, Nathan, I'm not really concerned about treasure. I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't really interest me all that much. I'm telling you, when you get there, when you get to heaven, it will be a big deal. It'll be a big deal. I'm not saying that you won't be happy. Everybody's going to be elated to be in heaven, to be with Jesus. But I do think that the depth of our enjoyment of heaven could be connected to our faithfulness here on earth. And here's what I mean. Uh, When our kids were little, uh, they used to sit on the kitchen floor and they would drag out the Tupperware, right? And we would give them like a spoon or something and they would bang around in the kitchen and just have the time of their life. They thought that was the best thing ever. But if I saw Devin sitting on the kitchen floor banging on Tupperware now, I'd be a little concerned, he's matured his enjoyment of life has deepened he has a better appreciation for good things if that makes sense so when we talk about detachment from worldly things it sounds strange to be motivated by rewards but the bible actually teaches this aspect Uh, we're to be obedient to god because we love him because of what he's done for us but also for the rewards that we gain when we get there and here's a few scriptures just to back that up Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those that seek him. Galatians 6 9, and let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap, reap a reward if we do not give up. In 2 John 1 8, watch yourselves, that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And then Revelations twenty two twelve. behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay everyone for what he's done. That's good news, guys. Jesus is coming back soon. I heard this week that almost a third of evangelical Christians no longer believe that the rapture is going to happen. Isn't that astounding? A third, don't believe that the rapture is going to happen. Uh, There's been arguments for years and years and years on when the rapture is going to happen. You know, is it going to happen pre-trib, mid-trib, post-tribulation? Of course, we know it's going to happen (laughs) pre-tribulation. We're not going to be here for all that. But I think you can chalk that up to people just simply not reading their Bibles. It's the biblical illiteracy of our day that people don't believe that the rapture is an actual event because the more that I study, the more that I read, the deeper my relationship gets, the more convinced I am that he's coming back soon. In the book of Revelation chapter two, Jesus talking to John has him write seven letters. He said, I want you to write seven letters to seven churches, five of them. He has a rebuke for, he says, I have something against you. There's a course correction needed. But two of them, they're not rebuked. They're actually encouraged because they've persevered in the face of persecution. Here's the first one. It says, To the church in Smyrna, and to the angel in the church of Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich and the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. It be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If we persevere, the second one was the church in Philadelphia and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write The words of the Holy one, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patient endurance. I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. That is the tribulation to try to those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. It's coming back soon. There was a preacher uh, during the time of the Roman empire and his name was John Chrysostrum. Uh, that was his name. And he died. He died. Um, in 407 AD, so about 400 years, almost 400 years after the life of Christ, and he was considered to be one of the best preachers of his day. Um, but his, you know, it was because of his convicting messages, his convicting pre- preaching, that ultimately got him exiled and led to his death. He started to gain popularity when he was in Antioch. That should ring a bell for you, Bible scholars. Antioch, where, you know, Paul and Silas were, uh, got their start. When a decree came out from the emperor that he was raising taxes and the people revolted, right? Imagine that. Going to raise taxes, people revolted. But the emperor sent soldiers in to squash the rebellion. They ended up killing a bunch of people, killing the leaders of the city. But John took this opportunity to stand up and preach to this terrified city. He said this, improve yourselves now truly, not as when during one of the numerous earthquakes or in famine or drought or in similar visitations, you leave off your sinning for three or four days and then you go right back to the old life again. That's what people do in our age. Something happens. What happens when, you know, something bad happens? When something catastrophic happens, people go to church. They change their lifestyle for a little while for a little while. Then they go right back to the old life. Uh, He preached one sermon against the theater. Check this out. This is really interesting. This is in 400 A.D., okay? Tell me if this doesn't sound like last Sunday. Long after the theater's closed and everyone's gone away, those images of shameful women, the actresses, still float before your soul. Their words, their conduct, their glances, their walk, their excitation, their unchaste limbs... And there within you, she kindles the Babylonian furnace in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, and the happiness of your marriage will be burnt up. Sounds like he's talking against Hollywood today. Before he was banished, he was threatened by the emperor's wife to stop preaching, to stop that message of conviction. And this is how that conversation was recorded she said, I'm going to banish you from the empire. He said, you cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. She says, well, then I'll kill you. He said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid in Christ. She said, I'll take away your treasures. He said, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven, and that's where my heart is. She said, I'll drive you away from your friends, and you'll have no one left. He said, no, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do to harm me. We're going to face persecutions of some kind if we stand for righteousness, if we point out the truth, but there's nothing that they can do to harm us, ultimately, because our lives are hid in Jesus. And if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. And he tells his disciples, he says, if you suffer for me, you're going to be doubly blessed. Yours is the kingdom. Amen. Amen.